choices shape the market, our society, and our quality of life. That's why EuroConsumers helps millions of people in their daily choices, providing simple solutions to complex problems. EuroConsumers is a cluster of organizations, a network of people, a group established to protect consumer rights and well-being that brings consumers and companies together in transparent relationships of trust that respect their independence. Our deep understanding of products and consumption gives consumers a credible expert voice worldwide. We bridge the gap between buyers and manufacturers, between supply and demand. And in this digital age, we create opportunities for all parties to come together in constructive dialogue, partnering to build a future of better products and services. Euroconsumers has the power of a global group that believes humanity can develop, grow and change for the better and that we can promote this by uniting millions of consumers in strength and speaking responsibly for them while simultaneously engaging in relationships of trust with responsible, sustainable companies. Good afternoon and welcome to the very first of Euroconsumers Start Talking webinars. My name is Liz Cole and I'm an expert in digital consumer policy and protection, formerly head of digital at Consumers International and founder of Connected Consumers, a strategic consultancy which advises businesses, consumer groups, standards bodies on digital consumer issues. Before I introduce our excellent panel today and the topic they'll be discussing, I'd like to hand over to Els Brugman, who is Head of Policy and Enforcement at Euroconsumers, who will welcome you all. Els. Well, thank you, Liz, and, and welcome everyone uh, to what basically is a bit of a pilot. Uh, this is the number zero uh, version of a new webinar series, Start Talking, that if all goes well, we want to conduct on a monthly basis uh, to talk about uh, items that are not on the political agenda yet or are quite new or about uh, important consumer trends where it's important for us to anticipate a bit. Um, it is in the DNA from, uh, of us as Euroconsumers uh, uh, to, to explore innovation. We don't like to uh, walk paths that are already beaten. Uh, we like to explore new paths. And uh, um, not, all, uh, not all of them will probably be successful, uh, but we are convinced this is the way to go if we want to raise discussion and uh, if we want to come to concrete, tangible results for consumers. Now, as you can see from our panel, we love to bring together uh, different parties, industries and, and civil society organizations so we can dialogue because at Euroconsumers, we absolutely believe in dialogue. We like to hear all points of view uh, without uh, prejudice or discrimination. And the reason why is 
that just because we have our own very solid and robust ideas, we like to compare them with others. We like to challenge them uh, because only by testing our own beliefs, we will be absolutely sure that there are the right ones. So having that said, Liz, I'm going to go, uh, go back to you, leaving the word to you. And so I would say, let's start talking. Thanks very much, Els. Um, so the topic for discussion today is age verification to copyright infringement, to preserve or not to preserve anonymity. But I think we'll find out there's a whole host of other issues tied up in that title. Um, so basically, in response to mounting pressure from consumer groups, parents, regulators and activists, there's been this discussion that's ongoing about whether many of the internet services and social sites that we all use, perhaps that we rely on every day, to, um, should be carrying out much stricter checks about who's posting, who's accessing, and who's using those spaces online. So this has raised the question of whether websites and platforms perhaps need to force users to actually prove exactly who they are. Is it worth it to keep people safe and to be able to track down offenders? Or is this one compromise too far on our privacy and anonymity? Will it reduce free expression and hurt communities that otherwise benefit from having an anonymity online? This struggle is a familiar one between, on the one hand, keeping consumers and people safe online, and the other hand, protecting everyone's privacy. So I'm very pleased to be here today to open up this debate with a really great mixed panel which I'm now going to introduce you to. And I'm going to start by introducing Marco Pancini, who is Director of Public Policy at YouTube. Welcome, Marco. Um, next, I'd like to introduce Theo Bertram, who is VP of Government Relations and Public Policy for Europe at TikTok. Um, next, sorry, hi, Theo. Next, we have Stefano Quintarelli, who's a digital and cyber expert. Um, he chairs the advisory group on advanced technologies at the UN Centre for Trade Facilitation and Electronic Business. He was a former chairman of the steering board at the Italian Digital Agency, an entrepreneur, technologist, someone who sits between many different um, realms. So welcome. We're very pleased to have you here today, Stefano. Um, next, we have Max Beverton Palmer, who is Director of the Internet Policy Unit at the Tony Blair Global Institute, who do a lot of work, uh, many things, but one of them is a technology programme looking to the future and how to improve the internet. Um, next, we have Marie-Paul Benassi, who is Head of Enforcement of Consumer Law and Regess at DG Just in the Commission. So welcome, Marie. And finally, last but not least at all, we have Marissa Jimenez, who is Director and Deputy Head of EU Affairs at Meta. So welcome, Marissa, and welcome, everybody. So we're going to kick off and start the discussion with an intervention from Stefano Quintarelli. And he's going to talk through his concept for how we might find a more effective way of managing um, balancing out these different user needs by using a trusted intermediary service that would provide protective, protected anonymity. I hope I've got that right, Stefano, but you'll tell us much more about it. Um, after that, we'll have a discussion and bring in the rest of the panel, and we're aiming to wrap up and finish by 3.45. So, Stefano, over to you, and just may I please ask you to keep to your allotted 15 minutes so we've got time for discussion afterwards. Okay, thanks very much. 
it's a pleasure and an honor to be uh it's a pleasure and an honor to be really the 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 the, the first speaker in the first event of euro consumers of this new series of of euro consumers podcasts so um i will try to to stay within 15 minutes and be, that i would start to i would like to start by establishing some firm points very quickly uh Perhaps some of you remember this brilliant uh, advertisement from Apple computers. Uh, it, it said, you see a Macintosh there. It was a first ad for a Mac. And, it, and that, that was derived from a talk that Steve Jobs gave where he compared uh, uh, personal computers to bicycles for the mind. And uh, uh, so actually now computers are rockets for our minds. They're not bicycles. Uh, uh, whenever we take uh, uh, something that is physical, that is material, and we, an activity, and we digitize it, it increases in speed and scale to a level that far exceeds uh, our human capabilities. The problem is that uh, analog institutions, that our traditional institutions, can't cope with digital problems, with the scale and speed of digital problems. So one possible option is to say, okay, let's stop the world I want to get down and kill some business model. A second option, which is the, the option that is now prevailing, is to somehow delegate the first degree of justice to the intermediaries because uh, the institution can cope with the scale and speed, the dimensions of the phenomenon. In, when, they, when we do this, uh, these intermediaries, social networks, social media, et cetera, they uh, use AI, uh, in order to take decisions on the legitimacy uh, of the content, of the actions of the users. But we must bear in mind, and, and this is going to grow, and this is going to grow because essentially, I would say statistically, it works. And so the request from politicians will grow. Uh, and so it, it's going to, that the usage of AI is going to grow in, in, in content moderation uh, and, and become very pervasive in anything. And, uh, but we know that AI is error prone because I mean, machine learning is inherently makes some mistakes. And somehow we must redress to these mistakes with some human uh, verification. Uh, then uh, uh, in some uh, jurisdictions that uh, we have some clear provisions, for example, in Italy, in Spain, that we call reserva de ley, reserva di legge. So everything is uh, 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 privacy is ensured except in cases limited by law. Unfortunately, when you do this technically, you cannot make this kind of law accepted. Uh, so everything is guaranteed except in the, ca in the cases provided by the law. Because in, with technology, it, it way or technology alone to address these issues. We need to bring in some other dimensions to the to the to the problem because technology alone cannot, cannot is not sufficient. Then another very important point to bear in mind is this privacy is a fundamental right. On the internet, you have the right not to disclose you are a dog, rephrasing a, a famous uh, a famous cartoon. Uh, we are anonymous online as we decide to be. But please notice that we already are not anonymous to many entities on the online 
to which we don't want to be anonymous. Retailers that ship us goods, banks, insurances, utilities, uh, even our digital identity within the EIDAS uh, framework. So this is one last, uh, uh, and here is an, an, a, one last point to, to, to bear in mind. And remedies so far has been constant, the measures that we have taken has been concentrated in trying to remit, to remain to remedying infringements. And this is somehow akin like uh, to, to what happened in, uh, in uh, 1830 when uh, uh, Robert Peel introduced the bobbies in, uh, in, 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 in police, where he invented the bobbies. So he tried not, not to remedy the infringement, but to prevent it. So prevent the opportunity of misconduct. This is, this is somehow a paradigm that I think we are ready to, uh, to follow now online. There are many persons, uh, many subjects in, in this, in this uh, that have some conflicting interests in these topics. Uh, persons, citizens want anonymity, privacy protections, want their rights to be respected. They want an effective redress. Service provider would like to have a liability exemption, uh, would like to avoid excessive burden. They want homogeneity because you cannot have some situation in Germany that is different in France or in uh, or in Italy. Uh, they want to have a scalable solution. They need to have a scalable solution. Courts want, of course, to respect the rule of law, to, to have the possibility of dealing with the cases, so manage to have a, a manageable scale and speed. Uh, content providers, publishers, etc., they want real-time measures, they want takedown, and they want stay down for their for their content because it's their, they, they own the rights. Uh, law enforcers want the possibility to prosecute those who misbehave, criminals. Uh, politicians, of course, want to please their constituencies, and there are many conflicting angles to this topic. And I think that society should uh, be interested in, in not having uh, chilling effects for legit content. The question, of course, is how can we keep all these uh, apparently conflicting interests together? Uh, we have two cases where we can start to learn from. For example, age verification. With age verification, the person submits to the social network their age. Then the social network relies to a trusted third party in asking, is this age correct? The trusted third party says yes or no. If it is yes, then it enrolls the, the social network enrolls the users and provides the user access. This is a very simple way how we, we bring in a trusted third party in the game uh, to verify uh, the, the, to do not, not specifically age verification, but uh, the fact that somebody can be entitled to access certain services or not. Another example could be uh, the public Wi-Fi hotspot, where a person with a desktop initiate to the server, to the, let's say, for example, when you, when you try to access the public Wi-Fi in Brussels airport. Uh, from your desktop initiator requires to the server, the server sends a code, a token to the MNO that gives it to the mobile of the user, uh, the NSMS, and then the user copies this token into the des desktop web browser, and then the user is able to access the web. So these, these are some protocols that, that bring in third or fourth parties in, the, in, in play in order to accomplish certain, uh, certain function. The token is tied to the mobile number, and this allows the person to be knowable. So the airport 
in, in the Brussels airport does not know the identity of the user, but it can it, the, the identity of the user can be knowable to law enforcement in case of misconduct, because we know in many cases throughout Europe, a mobile number is linked to an identity. Now, uh, something has happened recently that has changed the, 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 the scenario, and it's the, the, the case you, are, you, you all know about Poland versus the Parliament and the Council, where the Advocate General's opinion in this case says, uh, sharing service providers must only detect and block content that is identical or equivalent to the protected subject matter identified by right holders identical or equivalent. That is to say, content, the unlawfulness of which may be regarded as manifest in the light of the information provide, provided by right holders. So if the artificial intelligence says this is for sure an infringement, then it's, it must be blocked. It must be detected and blocked. By contrast, in all ambiguous situations, short extracts from works included in longer content, transformative works, etc., in which, in particular, the application of exceptions and limitations to copyright is reasonable, foreseeable, the content concerned should not be the subject of prevented blocking measure. So it should be published. The risk of overblocking is minimized. Right holders will have to, will have to request the removal or blocking of the content in question by means of substantiated notifications, or even refer the matter to a court for a ruling on the lawfulness of the content, and in the event that it is unlawful or there is removal blocking. Okay, this is the, uh, akin to what I said before of the reserva de ley, reserva de legge. So everything should be done in this way, except in some cases. The point is uh, that artificial intelligence often flags things like uh, ambiguous. And so, in, uh, and so what do we do? How do we treat this ambiguous content? By the way, there are some cases that cannot even be detected by AI because uh, AI does not it does not and will never be able to detect, to understand parody. So I will try to come with a proposed uh, uh, protocol, very simple protocol for this ambiguous content, not, not looking at remedying an infringement, but uh, preventing the, 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 the insurgence of the infringement. So I, I would call it, call it a digital bobby for uh, the possibly illicit content. By the way, this is explicitly stated uh, in the high-level expert group on artificial intelligence recommendations uh, to the European Commission, uh, where uh, under the redress by design uh, uh, recommendation. So the idea here is the person does uh, upload some ambiguous content to the social. The social network detects that it's ambiguous. So the AI of the social network det detects that it's ambiguous and it notifies the user of legal implications. Then. Will, is the user willing to assume responsibility for that content? If no, then the content is not published. If yes, we need somehow to be able to, to, to hold the user accountable without disclosing their identity. And that's where we can bring in a trusted service provider, a trust service provider. We, the user can obtain a, a protected anonymity token uh, from the trust service provider, and then, uh, can associate that token to the content. So somehow it's, it's like when we uh, associate our web browser with the code uh, when we access the, the, the Wi-Fi. In that case, as the opinion I read before, the content is published and uh, eventually it starts a notification to right holders or to law enforcement 
for a, a review of the case. This is a very simple add-on to the present uh, procedures that has many uh, implications. First of all, I would say it's easier, doing this is easier than logging into a public hotspot. The trust service provider does not know the content or motivation of the token request. The social network does not know the real identity. Redress is immediate. So the content is not blocked, like the, the, the opinion from the court, uh, from the European Court of Justice. Uh, it eliminates the areas of uncertainty in liability exemption, because it's very clear. Uh, uh, responsibility lies on the users in case uh, uh, the content is published because he's taking on a responsibility. This ensures the courts are in charge and not private service providers. So we're not delegating decision, the first degree of justice to, uh, to service provider. It quickly converges to an extreme reduction of illicit uploads because once you know that you can be trackable and what you're doing is illicit, then there is some, uh, I would say, some pedagogical uh, uh, implication in this. Uh, it allows, uh, it reduces uh, the number of cases because reduction of illicit uploads implies immediately the reduction in numbers of cases. And then they become in a number and a scale and a speed that is manageable to, to these analog, to our analog institutions. It allows law enforcers, enforcers to identify misconducts. Uh, there are, the account suspension of termination can be determined by the court. There is no chilling effect for alleged content, like the opinion of the court is requiring. The solution is, scalab is scalable and may be homogeneous because uh, EU, the EU can have a role of in, in, in this play because we can leverage them in our principles, in our values, to become the world's online trusted third party. Uh, a very last thing, trust service provide, in, in my opinion, there are some add-ons that are desirable. For example, trust service providers should delete the tokens after a specific time frame. let's say, I don't know, two years, one year, five years, six months, whatever. Once granted these tokens, they should be kept offline in order to prevent cyber attacks. Trust service providers can leverage various degrees of, the, of identification mechanism. Uh, you don't need to be to, to have a, a, a fully fledged EIDAS digital identity. You can rely on credit cards, data, or mobile phones, etc. So indirect user identity verification. And uh, the, the important uh, element is that this trust service provider must be trustworthy and audited. And by the way, we have already a similar infrastructure in Europe, throughout all Europe, where we have a number of trust service providers that, are, that do exactly this type of trust services and they are trustworthy and, they, and there is a very strong uh, uh, audit and sanction mechanism already in place. So this would be my proposal, an add-on to, uh, uh, to the existing protocols uh, very simple to bring in trust service providers, as you said in, in the beginning, and uh, that is compliant uh, with the and a possible implementation uh, of the opinion uh, of the court and uh, that satisfies uh, the requirements of, uh, I would say, all the stakeholders uh, in, uh, on this topic. And thank you very much. I'm open for questions. Thank you, Stefano. Um... That was really interesting. I think, I suppose for me, my first question would be that this idea of trusted intermediaries to help manage 
lots of challenges in, in digital environments has been around for quite a while. Um, why do you think now is the right time to be thinking seriously about applying it more widely? Because when we applied the, the when we approved the copyright directive, uh, everybody was trying to pull in their own directions. I mean, parties were not really trying to find a common to find a, a common ground, uh, a compromise on a possible solutions. Because everybody thought that they were going to win, content right holders and uh, platforms, etc. But uh, now that that is approved, and now we have this opinion uh, and this case of Poland mm. versus the European Commission. So. I mean, it's it's the right time to start to thinking about a possible complementary measures. Mm. And do you th and you think this has wider potential, not just for copyright, but for dealing with other types of content that needs to be absolutely, verified? yeah, absolutely. As I said in the in one of the premises is AI, the role of AI in moderating content online is going to grow significantly for everything, and so either we accept that a private company is the first degree of justice, or we need to bring the, the, the whole thing to a, to a level manageable by our analog institutions. And this type of preventing bobbies, digital mm. bobbies, is a way to reduce this scale and bring it all back to analog, uh, uh, analog manageable scales. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I'm just going to bring in Mary Paul now from the commission, um, because I'm sure that you've been thinking a lot about just how to achieve this balance between, in this case, it's between the privacy of people potentially posting content and consumer protection. So why is this balance so important for, for a digital Europe? You're, I think you're just on mute, Marie. Uh, That's great. I can hear you now. That um, consumer law, and I'm, I'm in charge of the implementation of consumer law. Huh? Um, so there are many domains, of course, which are concerned by your uh, your questions. But but in in relation to consumer law, uh, what is clear is that who is selling something cannot be uh, has to be identified. So if you if anybody who is posting something. Uh, with the intention to uh, on uh, ma making a post with the intention to sell something has to be identified uh, for the consumer. So I think that this this is a key principle and which is difficult uh, to uh, to achieve in the digital world. Uh, and so uh, this is why we are developing in the, at the union level more and more legislation uh, which uh, requires the, um, uh, the intermediaries to play a role in enabling the identification of traders, as you see, for example, in the proposal of the Commission on the DSA. Uh, so this, I think, in the in, it, it's it's a question now of how this is implemented and how to prevent illegal activities, as uh, um, mentioned by by um, our previous speaker. And I like this idea of digital cops because uh, if there are technical solutions, you know, to 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 check um, who are the people selling and whether they are well identified, I think that this would be this would be something very useful uh, then the other elements uh, uh, which which i think have to be taken into account is also 
um, the anonymity for the person who is receiving the content and who uh, may be exposed to illegal commercial activities. And, and there we have a tension between the necessity to keep the anonymity of these people and to protect the consumer and especially the vulnerable consumer. So this is why it's an interesting uh, um, uh, topic that you are discussing today because um, on age verification, for example, because there, uh, in order to do it, you, um, the anonymity of the person, and, and these are especially vulnerable consumers, uh, children and kids, has to be, uh, uh, to be fully um, respected, while at the same time enabling um, uh, to detect uh, a situation where they would be exposed to illegal content. So in the consumer legislation, we have this concept of professional diligence, which, which is very important, uh, and where we expect intermediaries to do their utmost to, at the same time, protect the personal data of the people, their anonymity, but uh, implement the necessary measures to prevent that they are exposed to illegal uh, content. And here I'm speaking of illegal commercial content, but it can be also, of course, uh, plenty of other uh, illegal content uh, to which the users of, um, um, of digital markets are exposed. So I would like to stop here uh, and I really would be very happy to hear what the, the other members of the panel uh, have to say. Thank you very much. So let's hear from someone else on the panel. I'm going to um, turn to Theo now, um, Theo Bertrand from TikTok. Um, do you think we're seeing a, re a big growth in the challenges around protecting anonymity of people use of users or people creating and sharing? Um, is it growing and, and what are the kind of problems with that? Yeah, thanks very much, and thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I think the debate around anonymity has really grown in Europe in the last, um, especially in the last year or so. And I think there's um, two broad elements to it. One, um, uh, as the previous speaker mentioned, is around uh, age verification. Uh, and then I think the other area is this broader uh, issue of identity and accountability. And, uh, and I think for and I'll come on to age verification, I think, later in our questions. But on this issue around identity and, and accountability, I think for some of our community on TikTok, it's really important to be able to use TikTok without having to use their real name. Um, so we have a, one of the biggest trending creators on TikTok at the moment is a young man called Francis, Francis Bourgeois. It's not his real name. He chose a different surname, and he's a he's a train spotter. So he spends his time filming himself, watching trains go past, writing down the um, the number of the train. And you know, traditionally, this has been a um, a hobby that has been widely mocked. And so he didn't want to use his real name, and he chose a different name. And he's now become uh, a very big star on TikTok. So for many different reasons people don't necessarily want to use their real name or their real identity. And I think we need to preserve that. And I think we agree on that. And I think Mr. Kinteri's proposal is actually about how can we how can we keep, do that without losing the idea of accountability. I think another key area we've seen a debate in the last year has been around the question of does anonymity lead to uh, more abusive behavior or criminal behavior? Um, 
uh, I think the whistleblower Francis Hogan uh, has talked about this a lot. Um, the point that she was making is that it's not anonymity that we see driving hate or driving mobs online. But what she saw was where we have these uh, groups and where you have people clustering online and where their views reinforce each other so that they believe it's it's okay to express the views that they have and they encourage each other to be more extreme. Um, I, I Twitter on, on this platform, but if, if they were, I'm sure they would point to um, their experience around um, uh, the, the football European Championship last year uh, and when uh, uh, England were knocked out on penalties by Italy, it still pains me to mention that, but when England were knocked out on penalties by Italy, there was a spike in racial abuse on their platform. But what they saw was that a majority of those users were doing so in their own name. They were still behaving in that same way. So I, I think they're, uh, I think it's wrong to, uh, uh, to, to fully um, uh, suggest that anonymity leads to abuse. I think there is a factor there, but I don't think it's the only driving factor. And clearly there is a benefit to, to society of having anonymity online. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about age verification, but those are just my initial thoughts. And I think um, that's really interesting what you say. So it's not necessarily your anonymity that protects you, but a different mentality and dynamic to the way platforms work which is very complex and is something that's that that's tricky to get to definitely tricky to like, create policy around because it's a shift i think in human and group behavior um i'm just going to turn to marissa there um from meta because facebook has traditionally not allowed the use of, of pseudonyms on accounts which suggests that you don't feel people should be anonymous and i'm quite interested in in that and then how you think the proposal that Stefano has talked about could work for Meta by taking things out to a third party. Thank you. I just <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you for uh, thank you for the invitation and for the uh, already great presentations. I think that uh, indeed, um, you know, anonymity can't be seen as, you know, something you have or something that you don't have. It really depends on the circumstances and on the service uh, and the objectives of the service. So you said that indeed on the, what we call the blue app on Facebook, uh, we've traditionally had a real name policy, um, but that is not the case for uh, for other, other services that we have. So Instagram and others where that is not the, the philosophy or the, or the, um, uh, or a prerequisite in any way. The idea, though, uh, from a mm, real name policy, I don't think that it has to be um, in some way understood as in an identified user or as in not preserving uh, anonymity. The idea of a real name uh, policy is that you, know, you want people to engage in authentic ways. And the best way to do that when you are in our in our in Facebook or social media uh, service is by presenting, uh, you, uh, you know, yourself, your authentic self, um, because this is about engaging with friends and family. Uh, other services are about pursuing interests where that aspect is not as important. Now, that doesn't mean that obviously there there is uh, there are circumstances where 
um, it is important that there's a certain level of preservation of, of, your, uh, of who you are uh, for very vulnerable, uh, um, not only vulnerable users, including journalists. And there, and there we have different features and different tools to allow for a strengthened or heightened protection. But I just would say that the anonymity per se, we could, we can't look at it just as a one monolithic thing, and and that uh, the the approach to anonymity or identification has to be exactly the same for every purpose and for every service, because that probably wouldn't be possible. Thanks very much. Um, and Max, um, I just wanted to turn to you because I know at the Tony Blair Global Institute and the work that your unit's done on social media futures, um, you've thought a lot about this and the point that Theo made that actually a lot of those, a lot of the racist abuse we saw after, and not just after the Euros, but constantly online, um, came from accounts which which actually weren't anonymous. Um, so can you tell me a bit about the, but can you tell me from the other side a bit about the risks of removing anonymity? We've heard about train spotters, but perhaps there's some more other examples that you can um, point to and, and from, from around the world where situations are quite different. Great, yeah, thanks. And I um, I do love Francis Bourgeois. He is, is worth a follow on TikTok. Um, so I, I think um, so. Obviously, like what you've mentioned about Twitter and the abuse um, after the Euros um, came from both um, uh, real people with real name accounts and um, and anonymous accounts. But there is we have to acknowledge there is a perceived immunity people get um, from anonymity, which may um, feel that they feel they're allowed to say things they wouldn't in person or abuse people or create multiple accounts which um which brigade or kind of coordinate abuse towards figures so anonymity does um play a part in this picture but as you said there's a very positive side to anonymity as well and um i think we often talk about the kind of protective ability of anonymity in climates and um, countries and places around the world um where anonymity might be um, needed to preserve your own freedom or um, to not um, kind of experience um, violence or abuses of power. Um, but there's a positive side to anonymity as well that we all partake in day to day and we all curate our own lives in different ways. Um, and my persona that I use at um, work or in this call or on Twitter might be different to one I use with friends and family. And so being able to kind of uh, understand your identity in many different levels is quite um, important. And so um, identity as well, when the kind of anonymity can provide a knowledge creation, Wikipedia, um, while you can kind of go through and see where people have made edits is largely kind of done anonymous, anonymously in various different ways. Um, so knowledge creation is a, is a benefit as well. I would say um, the important thing about this debate is that um, we what we're missing is in often an online world is this core identity infrastructure and the work we've done at the Tony Blair Institute is to say that uh, the new infrastructure of state in the 21st century includes um, identity systems but importantly user-centric and privacy and preserving identity systems um, and so states and um, other actors can create these platforms which you can design new services so I think of it as kind of social architecture. We've moved from a brutalist um, architecture of the 1950s or the in the digital world from the 2000s to a more social design where 
TikTok and Twitter build tools based on different layers of identity to protect people. Um, so you, for an example we've discussed um, and, and worked on is using digital, using a secure digital identity um, to verify accounts, to provide this optionality for platforms to verify um, accounts and that gives certain privileges to people that then creates a kind of protective space. It doesn't mean that you have to essentially strip all anonymity out of everywhere or um, or make or, or online. Um, but what we're missing at the moment is a kind of core sense of like identity that builds trust in systems um, and states building that. Apple's built it in a lot of their new developments as well um, with their iOS um, can provide lots of optionality to address some of these problems so that we can move away from this quite unhelpful political discussion of whether we should strip anonymity out of the internet. That's really interesting. Um, and I think the model you talk about is more about creating disincentives for people to continue or start doing, you know, abusing or doing bad things online as, a, as opposed to just blocking them. It's a way of trying to tip back and de-incentivize that behavior, which, um, which I think is quite interesting. Um, I'm just going to turn to Marco Pancini now, um, because I suppose I was thinking about YouTube and you've been dealing with these issues for a long time, particularly around the issue of copyright. Um, that's been a, a long-term issue for the company. And that's now added to things like posting of misinformation, age verification. Um, so I, it would be interested to hear, having dealt with this, these issues for, in the long-term, what, what you've learned about managing them and, and again, what a new approach like the one Stefano has proposed, um, what, what you make of that? Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, thank you, Euroconsumers, for having uh, me in this uh, very, very interesting conversation. So let, let me start from, from your questions uh, and um, let me stress uh, some of the points also my colleagues made around uh, the importance of looking at uh, anonymity uh, as, as, uh, you know, as an important component as well of, uh, of uh, the possibility for user to uh, make sure that they can uh, um, enjoy of uh, some important fundamental rights online. We always tend to look at this debate, uh, at this debate, or a debate on this issue and on other issue from our own perspective. Uh, when we move, uh, uh, we make a step back and we look at the global um, scenario, we, look, we, we need also to be um, honest and consider that the issues that we are discussing here, like in Europe, like anonymity or safety or privacy or possibility for minority to have a voice online, have a completely different, um, have a completely different uh, impact and uh, uh, possible also implication in other, uh, in other region of the world, in other, in other situations. So that, that's something that we need to consider very, very closely. Anything we are trying to experiment locally in Europe is seen from the rest of the world, often as an example. So we carry a huge responsibility. That also leads me to the point about uh, uh, the proposal of Stefan. Then we go back to what we are doing, and uh, you know, it's, uh, I actually need a public apology to, to Stefano because he spoke to me about this uh, proposal months ago, and I, I spent weeks in trying to think about that because it potentially is a great idea. Uh, the reality is that the possible, the only possible way this can go wrong needs to be very, very closely looked at 
before we 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 all as a community uh, or multi-stakeholder community we can look in solution like that for example the trade-off between security uh, and identification I, i'll tell you my personal experience i am using uh, a lot one of the third-party uh, verification system that we have here in belgium uh, i don't keep the name but it is everyone who's living in Belgium is using it, uh, is a sort of public-private subject, uh, very helpful in the COVID period, a life saver for you know, downloading all the information that we need, uh, in also interacting with your banks, with the public administration. I'm receiving every, basically every 15 days, an SMS to my personal phone number with a spam uh, attempt to, um, uh, ask me to click on this link uh, because my my account of the third party verification verificators is blocked and I need to unblock it. And I tell you that the first time I received it, I, I was tempted to click on it because it's it's a very important tool that I'm using every day. And if it's blocked, I really need to see what's going on. Then of course, like you know, wait, wait Mark, what are you doing? Like <laughs> you don't you don't have to, to click on it. But the thing that I was receiving an SMS on my uh, on my personal phone was really changing in a certain sense the dynamic. Here, once again, what kind of safety measure we can put around the system? Who is verifying the third party? What are the, also for, from a consumer, we like, when we think about the solution, we cannot only think about the expert, we need to think the, the normal uh, user. What kind of uh, um, system we can build around to make sure that these third parties can really uh, represent an opportunity. Uh, so that, that these are questions. So the two point, the geopolitical aspect and the global implication of using verification system and the security aspect, I think need to be taken in consideration on this once again, very good idea. Uh, then moving to what we are doing, I think there are also some best practices that are developed by the industry that uh, can, can be taken in consideration. For example, the use of uh, artificial intelligence, the use of uh, a series of signals that we see on our platform uh, that can help us to, um, to go through uh, or to minimize the collection of data for age verification, one example, or to provide uh, more safety to our users. These are all important uh, um, elements that can be considered in this conversation. Maybe, as Theo said, maybe if we have time later to go more in, in deep into the details of, of that. So once again, I think it's it's good to look at solutions. It's good to, to discuss uh, about the possible ideas. These ideas need to take in consideration global implication of uh, their implementation on one side and put uh, the consumer at the center of the development in, in order to provide the, uh, the best of uh, safety experience to consumers. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, right. We're getting into it now. So I'm going to go back to Stefano and put that question. So who who is policing the intermediaries? Um, how do we make sure they're safe and consumers don't face more problems? Sorry, I can't hear you. I think you're muted. Let me let me first of all welcome the idea proposal of Marco to keep on on the discussion on, on the proposals and go exploring the details. Of course, this is not the right moment nor place to go into the technical uh, details. Uh, uh, well, of course, I, what I what I can say is that I'm 
I was a, a, a computer security professor, so uh, and I'm te a technologist. So I, I would say that there are some details in my proposals. First, for example, the first one, it's a user-initiated uh, process, so there is no prompting that you have to reply to. Then, uh, who who policies the the the, the, the trusted third parties. Well, those subjects that should be entitled to do this type of uh, token provision should be audited uh, by our governments. Pretty much the way we are now, uh, we have now for banks, uh, for uh, ident identity providers under the IDA scheme or other entities that are regulated. So there should be uh, some kind of regulation establishing the level of uh, of inspection uh, to these to these subjects. Uh, one of the details I, I added is that uh, the, the token should be kept offline in order to, minim to minimize uh, cybersecurity risk, for example. Uh, this should be audited. You must verify that this happens. But once this happens, of course, I mean, it, uh, the, the, the cybersecurity risk is, uh, I would say, solved. Then about the global scalability, that is absolutely an issue. And I tried to draft some ideas at the beginning during my talk. And I said that this can be a homogeneous uh, solution working at a global scale because we already are relying on some kind of indirect user, not identification, but identificability, the possibility of identifications uh, when we give some proofs uh, of identity to online services. That is already happening. Any, any, in any case, these are correct remarks and remarks, uh, and I really would welcome the possibility of, uh, of exploring further the, the details uh, uh, of these proposals with all the interested parties. Thank you, Marco. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Stefano. So commitment there to keep talking. Um, I think the point about the, the international and the global need for this to work is really interesting. And I just wanted to quickly come back to Marissa from Meta, because one of the criticisms that, that came from um, Francis Hagen was the, the different levels of um, service that users had in different countries, where there was more attention given to content moderation in particular countries than, than others. Um, and I just wondered what, if you had anything to say on that and whether these more this would overcome that, having a global solution which would be working for consumers no matter where they lived. Well, I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble to understand how that fits into anonymity, but, but perhaps what you're saying is but it's, it's a very valid question and it could apply to the question of anonymity or any question content moderation. I think um, what uh, Francis Haugen was talking about uh, was the fact that, in her opinion, there were some faults as to the, it, it was for her apparent that the resources that a company might have uh, in, in moderating certain content in certain languages uh, might be different uh, from others. And uh, to be very clear, the fact that there's a, you know limited resources that so a company does not have infinite resources is true. Uh, that's that we try to manage the, be the manage it the best the uh, best way we, we can. But indeed, there's in certain aspects or in certain um, uh, languages, and uh, they 
the content moderation is more difficult mm. because it requires people that speak them. Not a lot of people speak them. We need to take into account the context. Uh, we need to work with others as well. So it is true that in certain languages, the doing the job, which is maintaining the platform, ma making it safe and warranting safety is more mm. difficult than in other languages like English or Spanish or, you know, th that where there's more people speaking them on the platform. Mm. So that is very true. But indeed, uh, a company like Meta uh, in all the services that we provide, our ambition is always to be global in nature. Uh, and this is really one of the uh, one of the um, most most uh, tangible problems and tensions with policymaking, because a global service needs to deal with not only with local uh, uh, realities uh, and with local uh, laws as well, lo local understanding, and we have to find that that yes. balance, that, that coexistent balance between the two. So. Yeah. Uh, indeed, uh, the, the the effect that anonymity can have uh, as a tool or as an obligation in one country, in one society, in one culture is very different than in others. For example, uh, on misinformation, just to give you a tangible example of, of the differences as well, a piece of uh, misinformation or a piece of uh, content um, affected from one person to another in one part of the world can lead to real world harm in ways mm. that in another in another part of the world it wouldn't. So mm. uh, if you're asking whether you know uh, having to deliver a global service in a very you know in a world with distinct uh, uh, understandings and, uh, and identities and cultures, it is ex an extremely difficult thing to do. So we have to obviously continue to to be better. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you wanted me to talk about, but that's where it led me when I heard you talk about global versus local. Yeah, no, I was thinking very much about um, that we are maybe think we have maybe come to this as a Euro consumers panel thinking very much about um, that kind of usage. But half the world's online now and global companies are serving many of those people. There's going to be the differences you mentioned, but also levels of capacity for market surveillance and policymakers and all of those things need to be part of this discussion as well, as well as the technicalities of how a system could work. Um, uh, so where are we now for time? We're coming up to half past. Um, we did say we'd talk a little bit about um, the age verification issue, because it's another one that comes up very much with this um, kind of third party um, model of verification. So one use of this anonymized approach is age verification and you can immediately think that anonymization and not having your identity exposed would be very important for people accessing particular content i'm thinking about over 18s accessing adult content where at the very least it might be embarrassing at the very worst it could lead to real physical harm and exclusion and, and rejection from parts of society so that's a massive issue there and then on the other hand we have services that are aimed at younger users where you need to maintain this age-appropriate space and here amongst the panelists there's been some different approaches so so marco youtube approached this by setting up um a completely separate service youtube kids can you tell us why you took this approach and 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 whether it's been successful and and why you think this is probably could be a better way of achieving this safety so look, I think uh, 
we come to this uh, uh, topic more from from an holistic point of view. So it's not just about uh, YouTube uh, Kids, which is, uh, uh, as you say, it is a separate uh, uh, service and I would say ecosystem that we dedicate to uh, families and children in order, in order to really have a safe experience. But also, when we look at main, YouTube main, our approach is really an approach which takes in consideration the, the I will call it a concept of age assurance. So a broad concept where we establish uh, the, um, the age of the user using different system and also considering the um, sort of uh, important balance that needs to be found between collecting data and uh, um, minimize the collection of these data as well for the things that we really use. So to say in a different way, when we move up from self-declaration, which is the first step, and still it's a quite important step to account confirmation uh, age valid validation, which is, for example, something that we are using in the context of uh, uh, our uh, family link the service that across all the alphabet uh, services like uh, Google, YouTube, allow parents to have uh, um, an overview and make informed choice about the experience of their kids uh, and children on our services. Then we, we, move up, we, we move up, we have also system of age estimation based on the best of our technology, our AI uh, system, which allow us together with the other two um, approach that I discussed before, to come with our own estimation of the age of the children, therefore provided to the, to the family and the children a different experience. If I am, for example, coming on YouTube and I watch uh, Peppa Pig and I'm not logged in, the treatment that uh, YouTube makes of the user is, is as the user is a child, even if maybe I'm an adult. Uh, and, I've been, uh, and therefore, like again, the uh, age estimation is a very important point. And finally, Age verification still is part of this mix. Of course, it is. Like, for example, I said um, YouTube Kids, separate experience for family and kids below 13. Then you have main, where you have family link and different ways for parents to control the experience of, uh, of children that are above 13. So you can have an account on, on, on YouTube. And then what you have, for example, if for content that is still in line with our policies, but we believe it's only for a mature audience. It's, and we cannot uh, infer from the different system that I described before, the age of the user, finally, age verification still is a, a possible solution to be put in place whenever we want to make sure that uh, somebody that we believe potentially could be a minor wants to uh, watch a piece of content that we believe it's only for a mature audience. So once again, I would call it more in a holistic way, age assurance, different degrees and really use of all the system together in order to maximize safety and minimize user collection. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much. User and uh, Theo, in, I mean, TikTok, you immediately think of, of younger people and I know my children seem to be on it more than, spend more time with it than they do with me at the moment. But, um, and that content's very appealing both to, under 13s and over 13. So how what's your approach to protecting young people from inappropriate content? And could you see back to what Stefano was talking about, a way of a third party way of verification? Would that work? 
So, uh, yeah, safety is our um, number one priority, and in particular, child safety. And I can try and briefly explain our approach to under 13s and over 13s. And then, um, and then I've got some challenges for, for Stefano. Uh, I'd love to. Um, Great, hear. yeah. Um, uh, so, we don't allow uh, under 13 users. And um, when anyone downloads the app, they have to give their age. We don't prompt them to give the right answer. If they get it wrong, they get blocked. And if they want to appeal, they have to show us proof of age. But that's not the only um, step we take. It's not just at the front door. It's once you're on the app, we're also constantly uh, trying to make sure that we can remove uh, those who are under 13. We do that in a number of ways. One is um, that uh, we introduced a button so that anyone can very easily report any other user they believe to be an under 13. Another is that every time any video is flagged to a moderator for any reason, the moderator will review the account to see if that user is under 13. Uh, so as a, as a result of these measures, uh, we removed uh, just over 11 million in a, in a three month period, 11 million under 13 users uh, in a three month period globally. And we now publish those numbers on a quarterly basis. I think we're the only company currently doing that. And you can say whether that's too many or too few, but at least you can hold us to account on that. Now for over 13s, I think I agree with Marco that you know, the big trend is towards age assurance. And I would add to that uh, age appropriate design by which I mean, you know, we shouldn't think of childhood as you're either under 13 or over 13, which in some ways is a kind of accident of design of an American legislation rather than a, a child psychology approach. And I think it's probably healthier to think of the different developmental stages of, of childhood and, and then to recognize how that needs to be treated differently. So for example, for those under 16 on our platform, um, they uh, it's private by default, which means they can post a video, but they can't share it widely. It's only can be shared uh, privately uh, with those they know. People can't comment on a video uh, of an under 16, um, uh, and there's no direct messaging for those under 16. Now, if you're older, uh, an older teenager, then you have more um, options. But again, it's that kind of designing the product in a way that uh, that is suited to the different ages, uh, and rather than just thinking about it as you know as a single age cutoff. On on um, on, uh, on on Mr. Contrelli's idea, you know, I, what I really like about it is. I think it solves that issue of privacy. That you know, if if we asked every parent, every user, every time they use an app, every time they use a website, to have to hand over ID cards, it's a massive privacy risk and a huge amount of data, and it would be a big deterrent to people. Um, so I think it does a great job in solving that. I think there's a couple of other challenges we should also look to see how do we solve, and that's my challenge. One is accessibility. So um, you know, you know, hopefully most kids have a parent who will go through that process of, of, of doing the, uh, the necessary register to get the token and have enable their child uh, to use the device. But, but maybe not every parent has the time or inclination to do that. The biggest TikTok creator in Italy, in fact, the biggest cre creator in Europe is Kavi Lame, who has, whose parent, you know, who, who had no passport, uh, is an immigrant in, 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 in Italy. And, and would he, uh, would his parents have gone through that process for him? I don't know, but I think it's something we should think about is what mm. about accessibility. The other factor that I think is really important is competition. And I think 
if you present to people um, uh, two options, one is these platforms that you use all the time and you know, uh, Alphabet and Meta are, are great companies and all of us use them and it's inescapable that we use them. And if they say, you can yeah, use another product, you don't need to go through this process because we already know who you are. Or the option is you have to go through a, a new, another process to go through another app. Then I think there's a risk there that people stay with the, the large companies that they're already registered with, that already have their identity rather than there being new competition in the market. So I think one possible way of tackling that would be um, rather than getting every app or every website to do the sort of pinging of the token, could that be done at the app store level? So that if Apple or Google know the identity and they can do that at the app store level, then it's a kind of even playing field for everyone else that they just check with the app store. Uh, and that's kind of less friction there in the market. So that would be, um, kind of one challenge back to uh, Stefan about how do we how do we solve not just privacy but also the the competition and accessibility arguments. That's an interesting idea, um, Stefano. What do you think of those those challenges and and even a suggestion for getting over that? Okay, uh, first of all, thank you again, and I welcome the possibility the idea of keeping on discussing the details because this is very relevant. Uh, I would like to comment first on what has been said before. I believe uh, that uh, this topic is evolving and the, the whole way how we are regulating is evolving. And I see a greater fragmentation in the, in the ways how we deal with this is coming between lenders in Germany, among different lenders, states in Europe, etc. And of course, there is an issue about a global possibility, but then we, we can discuss in detail about that, but if we don't, we are going to have greater uh, a greater degree of fragmentation, I believe. Um, to um, to 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 this last suggestion of the idea of the competition issues. Uh, well, as he was talking, I was thinking that effectively, and it's something that I never thought before. Uh, this type of procedure is fair and it's doable and it's manageable also for smaller players not only for the large players who can afford to have a very uh, sophisticated ai team working uh, on these platforms so effectively it opens uh, competition on uh, because it levels the field with smaller players in terms of capability on how to manage this this issue so this is this is key uh, the fact of moving uh, identification to uh, the store level well uh, i don't see it uh, as a, a pro competition issue really because for example if uh, i own a huawei phone uh, without a, a without a Google App Store. So it's uh, somehow I would be cut out of it. So it needs to be universal. And there are already some entities that have uh, uh, universal, uh, that provide universal service to the universality of users that cannot deny their services. And this everywhere in, in the world, online, I mean, with, uh, with uh, know your customer procedures. I'm not saying that we need to refer to, to credit cards, although some, somebody does, or to banks, etc., there, there might be different players with different degrees uh, of identifiability, because the key here is that you are not identifiable, you are identifiable. 
uh, you're not identified, you're identifiable. So this is the this is an important thing. So I would be somehow it's something that we can think about uh, the pros and the cons. Uh, but I would be more worried uh, to rely on uh, uh, the gatekeepers of the uh, of the stores uh, rather than to institutionally audited and surveilled bodies. For example, I see this as a as a, as a clear uh, evolutionary path for consumers associations. I mean, consumers associations have a trust relationship with the members. This could be a service that is provided by a consumer association, not only consumer association, other players. The important thing is that we have a framework in place that says, if you provide this service, then you're going to be audited and there, you have a minimal set of, of, of obligations to comply with. Thank. I'm going to stop you there because we're coming towards the end and we had a couple more panellists wanted to come in on this idea and I'm going to ask them to, to comment and respond and then also to to just give a final comment um, as we as we come nearer to the close. So first to Marco and then I'll come to Max. Thank you so much, Liz. And quickly on, on this idea, look, I think the global success of TikTok is a testament of the highly competitive environment that we are all active on. And, you know, if you come with a good idea and a compelling service, uh, you can uh, gain a global audience quickly. But the counterpart of this is that all of us, and we first, we need to be responsible players in this environment. We need to come with the effective solutions that, as I said before, can assure maximum, as, as, as good as possible, safety experience to our users and minimize user data collection in order to meet uh, both legal and uh, user expectation on this area. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. And, and Max, just to you for, for a response and, and perhaps a summing up comment on where you think these kind of ideas could go next. Yes, so I, I think it's um, I think that's a really interesting idea from Theo. It reminds me of some other proposals that um, others in Stanford, um, Francis Fukuyama, have developed around middleware and making kind of services of platforms open to others to use. So um, tokenization through trusted parties like an app store might be an interesting way to approach the issue. Um, I would say as well that like the, there's a important role of um, regulation creating the right incentives um, for services and the in good and responsible design, including age assurance. Well, I mean, we've got to credit the age appropriate design code in the UK for these innovations of these platforms. And I know they're doing great things to design the platforms, but the impetus and the spur of this is definitely a kind of um, a regulatory one. Although I, ask, I do think we're seeing a lot of innovations in privacy protecting technology and anonymity protection, particularly in the US. Um, in, in big companies and, and fraud and, and fintech in the UK is one where we're, um, uh, we're seeing particular innovation. Um, I would say the kind of trade-off that platforms have to make is um, between friction in getting users onto their services and safety. Uh, and we've talked a lot about the kind of age verification, but there's also a point about adults and protecting and making sure you understand who are adults on the platform as well. Maybe a bit of friction in the process um, would help other issues, for example, and kind of sharing misinformation, platform design to kind of encourage responsible behavior. And, then, and to sum up, I would say um, this is a kind of a much bigger issue than just simply um, uh, one about kind of anonymity online. It's about um, trust, fundamental trust people have in technology and systems um, and the trust in the use of data and the use of advanced 
analytics and machine learning mm. to make decisions in society and platforms that we've heard from today have a responsibility to uh, make sure they build privacy protecting services they build trusted services and, and work with each other where possible to build that trust because the whole um, system of progress the whole ability for us to improve the lot of other citizens in society depends on citizens trusting the use mm. of their um, data um, so it's a kind of much broader uh, responsibility that everybody has here. Thanks very much, Max. Um, it's reminding me of conversations I had many years ago about password managers, which when you sit in a room of technologists and policy people sounds such a um, simple and perfect idea. And then I mention it to friends and they're just like, why would I trust, who would I trust to have all my passwords? And, and it's at that level, there's a, the consumer reaction is, I still feel like I'm handing over an awful lot of me and my security to someone that I don't know. And I think perhaps that that's what's underpinning a lot of these conversations. Okay, we're coming up towards the end. Um, I just wanted to ask for super quick um, final comments from everyone before I turn to Marie Paul. Uh, yeah, Marie Paul, who's going to, to sum up with a short reflection from, from her point of view. But I just, if I could say this is about starting the conversation and we don't want to leave the discussion here. So what do you think um, I'm, everybody would be the next the next thing we need to really talk about in, in terms of this conversation? Um, so Theo, what do you think? Is it competition? Is it security? Or what would be your final comment? Well, I, I think clearly you know, the way um, that uh, things are heading, that we, you know, there is a huge appetite across Europe for um, better forms of identification. And I think having been through the pandemic and as market was you know, suggesting, I think the fact that we've all had to use um, apps to verify you know, very personal medical details about ourselves, uh, just to go to the shops, just to go to a restaurant, I think that's kind of changed our uh, understanding of how uh, identification uh, can work. So I think this is uh, an issue that's become more important. And I think it's great that um, we're having this discussion. And I think it's really important that consumer groups play a leading role in this. So it's not just a discussion between uh, the companies and, and, and the politicians. Um, so I welcome this debate and I'm looking forward to taking it forward. Thank you. Um, Marco, any closing comments from you on what we need, what, what, you, what are you and Stefano going to talk about next? <laughs> Look, I think uh, these solutions uh, and these ideas are worth of uh, further discussion. I think we need to think holistically about this solution. We cannot only think to solve the single issue, but really we need to look at these solutions as empowering consumers, in particular parents, to have a safe experience online and to have a better control of the online environment in a way which is easy to use. Thank you very much and thanks for your brevity. Uh, Stefano, just finally, what have you taken from today's discussion to help you developing this idea? Uh, I, think that, I think that nothing is more powerful of an idea whose time has come, somebody said. Uh, I think that the time is coming because of what Theo said about how we now are, you know, the pandemic has just put us, drift us in, in, in a pool, in a digital pool, and we must all start to swim, even those who, who are not able to swim. So digital identity is the key. Uh, there are going to be some evolutions in digital identity at European level with the, within the EIDAS framework. There is a proposal for an evolution of the, uh, of the, of the regulation. So, uh, 
I think the time is is right to start a, a thorough discussion on this. Uh, security is a, is absolutely an issue. Uh, privacy is absolutely an issue. Competition is an issue. Uh, and I think that I would what I would like to happen is to enlarge this discussion uh, to uh, all to other uh, relevant parties within the Commission, namely those that deal with uh, uh, competition and uh, yeah. technical aspects uh, and DigiConnect, uh, so digital identity, etc. Because uh, because time has come, really. Maybe it could even be some kind of self-regulation. Let, let's start with a, a self-regulation, an experiment, uh, or, or something. Uh, things are going to happen in Italy. We have. Uh, I, I made. I started, and I, I uh, oversaw. So I oversaw the, the the building of the Italian digital identity system. Speed. We now account more than twenty eight million users. And uh, and we are now going to announce soon in Italy uh, the digital identity for kids. That is very helpful for mm -hmm. school, for remote distance uh, starting, etc. So, and and that has a lot of privacy built in in it. Okay. So, we, so there may be we, some lessons there. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there so we don't overrun. But thank you. No, we will definitely need to to, to keep on talking. Yeah, absolutely. And Marie-Paul, just a few final words from you on what you've learned today and what you've taken away. But if I could ask you to be very brief. Yes, uh, thank you. And thank you for, for inviting me to, to, this, um, uh, to participate to this panel where, where I think I could uh, hear with, um, with a lot of um, um, satisfaction the, fa the, um, the fact that um, all the big platforms which are uh, participating today are developing their tools, you know, to, to do age verification, for example. I think that this is very, uh, very important and that, that, that they, they are also um, uh, implementing this uh, um, the, um, the, in in a different um, layers of age, you know what what content can be uh, can be accessible. I think that this is very important. I also um, had a dream, you know, so quite a long time ago, of this digital identity for consumers, where they could also um, identify not only what, who they are, but also what they want to be exposed to. And, uh, and in particular, um, I think there is a lot of discussion at the moment on targeted advertising. I think that very important for consumers to be in a position to really manage uh, mm -hmm. how their details are shared among a number of uh, of traders of course here uh, it's uh, it's my my hat as a as a consumer protection um, uh, specialist you know uh, but this kind of uh, of of system where you set your preference for many different types of things i think should be super useful mm -hmm. and uh, and i'm quite confident by listening to you that technology uh, can can assist really to yeah. um, to, to find solutions. Absolutely. We, we just need the collective will to get there. Okay, we've run over slightly and I'm really sorry about that, but I didn't want to um, close the discussion uh, as it was getting very interesting. So thank you so much everyone for your participation to Max, to Marco, Stefano, Mary Paul, Theo and Marissa who's now left us. And thanks again to Euro Consumers for hosting this and we will see you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much.
thanks to you. It has been a pleasure. Do you have an idea how 